if you're new to the podcast, you might not know that I did an interview with Dr. Andy Palmer. This man has over 40 years of experience in the industry with companies like Nissan, Aston Martin, and now High Loan Inabat, innovative electric companies. This man is doing more and more for the world that we want to live in. Now, if you want to find out how he's doing it, listen on, because you might just learn something. Before I start, thank you for listening. This is the Ignition Podcast. Get ready to fuel your passion for cars and motorsport every Monday and Thursday. We bring you stories, valuable career tips, and tricks that will help you navigate the automotive world. So don't miss out. Follow the Ignition Podcast now and join the drive towards becoming the number one automotive podcast worldwide. Let's embark on this thrilling journey together. Enjoy the episode. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Brilliant. So um, you've done a lot uh, so far. We <laughs> say in the uh, in the uh, forty odd years that you've been in the industry. Um, yeah, 40, 40, 42, I believe. Forty-two. This, yeah, this, 42. yeah, I mean, it's it's almost double double me on my lifespan so far. Um, but the last question I get to start with: so, what ignited sort of your your passion for cars? What, what made you want to become an apprentice in the first place? Um, I, I don't think that there's always uh, absolute decisions that get made you start, to some extent you stumble into these things but yeah uh, at 14 years old uh, my father bought me an a series engine uh, the a series engine is the engine out of the old mini I, uh, yeah and uh it, it was a wrecked engine but but i i used to sort of be on his black and decker workbench uh taking it apart and putting it back together and, and generally speaking just learning the principles of engines so that that was kind of the if you want the inspiration um i didn't really like school very much if i'm being honest i wasn't yeah. bad at school but i didn't enjoy it and uh and so i knew that i wanted to become a draftsman uh, an automotive uh, engineer and it seemed to me that the quickest way of doing that was to was to leave school at, i essentially left school at 15 started my wow. apprenticeship at 16, so 3rd of September 1979. Uh, and that seemed to me to be the the sort of most expedient way of getting to where I wanted to get to. Oh, wow. So how was that experience? You said learning, learning at the hands of, we'll say, we'll say masters, sort of yeah, developing yeah. Well, those well, skills. It, it, it is, isn't it? It is learning from, from masters in the business. And that's what makes uh, apprenticeships rather special and differentiated from, say, going to university. Um, look, th- those four years um, were, I-, I would rate as the best years of my life. So that's where I met my long-term best friends. It's, yeah. it's, it's a period of time which I look back on uh, with, with great affection. It's where I learned my trade. Um, it's where I learned to communicate with people. Um, in the auto industry, I'd also say that it's where I learned where to look for the dead bodies, so where people are trying to hide things from you. Um, yeah. So you sort of learn a way, a knack of knowing where, where what the questions to ask and where it might be the problem. So uh, it served me really, really well. Now, an apprenticeship by itself um, uh, is, is great, uh, but, but you really, I would encourage anybody that can and wants to, to on top of that, later go and study for, a bachelor's, a master, whatever. I, I did a, I did a bachelor, a master's, a PhD, and a, um, and an MBA uh, on top of the apprenticeship over the course of my life. But of course, I didn't finish my PhD until I was nearly forty years old. So I, I, I found a sense of also loving academia 
a little bit later in life. And I think that's one of the things that typically marks uh, apprentices that quite often they're late developers. I know I was, uh, yeah. but I, I matured into the academic side and I, I did all of that academia on a part-time basis or on weekends and nights. Um, but, but, you know, that sort of complemented the practical skill set that I'd, I'd picked up during those apprenticeship years. So you, you took what you learned from apprenticeship and then you, so you moved to Rover. Um, yeah. Yeah, so were, were you working, were you, I mean, so you mentioned the A-Series and the Mini, so that's, that's, that's my personal favourite car. So right. I, I wanted to ask you, what were you working with the Mini itself or did you get to... I was working with the Mini. Um, interestingly, because this would have been in the late 80s. Yeah. Um, I was at Rover for five years, at AP, where I did my apprenticeship, mm. for seven. So I'd, I'd sort of specialised in uh, gearboxes. And when I went to Rover, I went into the engines division, but eventually moved across into what was called fluid systems, drive line, and eventually transmissions. Um, yeah, I have a lot of affinity with the Isigonis Mini. Yeah. Um, and, and partly because in the late 80s, it looked as if Austin Rover, as it was called then, yeah. were going to stop the Mini uh, because it couldn't meet the, the Euro 1 conditions. There was a, a lot of debate at the time around whether the industry should go lean burn or whether it should go to catalyst. Ultimately, it was a, um, a Mrs. Thatcher government that decided to follow the EU regulations yeah. much to the displeasure of the management of uh, Austin Rover, who wanted to go lean burn. Um, yeah. But it was it was that that um, legislation that was hoisted on us that we thought we couldn't package um, a catalyst in the uh, what became the 1990 Mini. And I had a really young team. We were all young, actually. Um, a bit naive, a bit wet behind the ears, but there was... In that kind of a team, there are no big barriers. And, and so we found a way of packaging the catalyst. Well, that's always, isn't it? It's, naivety breeds, breeds creativity. and so you Sometimes, kind of, yeah. And look, yeah, we did stuff that, as an as a older guy now, um, the, the change to the engine package was enormous. And you would say impractical now. But back then, it was, yeah, we just move the radiator around and move the engine position around and we'll fit the catalyst. And, and we gave... The, the mini a new lease of life through through that period and 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 you know if you if you come to sort of my pictures of what I call my children um, then then basically the mini is the first one even though I wasn't the father I'd like to think of myself as a little bit of the stepfather that, yeah. that helped it helped it just maintain that longevity so a mentor to the mini itself exactly. Um, yeah, fantastic. So you spent all this time working with the Mini, and then you moved. So you moved to Nissan. Is that correct? At the uh, sort of in yeah, 90s, I mean, that's in in in, in, in harsh reality. That was yeah. that was true. Um, I was actually when I was a Rover, so I became chief engineer for yeah. uh, transmissions, um, and I was working a lot with the Honda guys because back then Honda and and Rover had a relationship, and I could see particularly um, through the 800 series. Um, there was an 820 and an 825. One had a Honda engine in, one had a, uh, a Rover engine in. Yeah. I could see the level of quality that was coming from everything that Honda touched, to some extent comparing it with the Rover stuff, which wasn't so reliable. And that frustrated me, but it also gave me a sense of 
of wanting to learn what the Japanese were doing so well. Yeah. Uh, I also read an MIT book called The Machine That Changed the World. And again, it inspired me to want to find out more. So this comes back to this, you know, do you have a strategy around your career? <clears throat> At that time, my strategy was to go and spend three to five years with a Japanese company, yeah. learn what it was that they were doing, and then come back. Um, in fact, I, I did make the move. I, I, I went to Nissan. Yeah. Uh, just as it was moving its R&D from Sunderland uh, down to uh, Cranfield. Uh, and, and, you know, I did learn what the Japanese did so well. It's just I stayed there 23 years. Oh, you clearly enjoyed your time there. <laughs> uh, the first, yeah. the first uh, 10 years were uh, in, in engineering, pure engineering. Yeah. Uh, I eventually headed um, Nissan's European engineering. And... I really enjoyed the discipline, the, the processes that the, the Japanese, uh, and you could see why they were so good. So, you know, they'd have a, a test spec, they'd have behind the test spec, the reason why the test spec was like that. And you had this, what they would call the Kaizen. So anytime there was any problems in warranty or market, that that test would then get iteratively updated. So you, yeah, you create small this improvements. Bank, yeah. yeah, small improvements. And you create this bank of knowledge uh, that you carry through to each and every program. And, of course, a company the size of Nissan was doing a lot of programs every year. So I learned a lot through that process. Then the um, relationship with Renault occurred. So I was kind of, of in the middle of that. Um, mm. I, I thought that what was called Nissan European Technology Centre would probably get closed down uh, because I assumed that if it was getting combined with Renault, that the engineering in Europe would go to... Uh, Renault in, in France. Sure. But in fact, um, the, the, as you know, the guy that led that um, alliance was Carlos Ghosn, and yeah. he was much brighter. He understood the necessity for each brand to have its identity, uh, and um, he, he ultimately determined that uh, Nissan should keep its own engineering in Europe. Um, and fortunately for me, he when he came over, he spotted me uh, and uh, wanted to to create what he called his six samurais. Um, okay. These were what was called program directors. They were mini CEOs uh, of the business divided by six. And, and I was asked to go to Japan, live in Japan, and become one of those samurais responsible for light commercial vehicles, which was a bit of a failing division at the time. Um, but I was able to revive it and do really well and won the president's prize and... Wow. Um, uh, turned it into a really profitable business. So that was my first step really into the business world as opposed to the pure engineering world. But but nevertheless, the logic of engineering prevails through through the business environment. Yeah, so you, so you, spent, you spent 10 years working how to effectively, like I say, master the engineering yeah. or your, your trade there. Yeah. So yeah, 13, 13, years 13, 13 years in Japan. So first of all, as, as, as we said, like commercial vehicles. Mm. Um, then uh, Carlos Tavares, who was my boss in planning, he moved across to, to head up Nissan North America. Okay. Uh, and I moved into his position as head of planning. So then, then I had corporate planning and, and, and product planning. And then over the years, uh, that evolved into the most important, perhaps, being the head of the zero emission division, which created yeah. the Nissan Leaf, Leaf and the Leaf, 200 yeah. 
um, chairman of Infinity. Um, then I had uh, created uh, what we call Marcom, which was a combination of marketing and communication. So okay. bringing together the PR division. That was about improving the brand reputation of Nissan. Uh, eventually, then I also picked up sales and, and, and IT. So uh, was by the time I left, and I left, uh, I was chief operating officer. Um, quite a significant part of the Japanese operations were then reporting to me. Um, but as I said, perhaps the two things I was most proud of, one was the light commercial vehicles, which uh, was by that time selling over a million units a year and at one yeah. moment was uh, 11% EBIT. Um, and then um, the creation of the LEAF uh, and bringing that to market as what was really the first mass production electric car and it was out yeah. of, it was really out before tesla uh anything the yeah. esther market so it was really a pioneer did you did you always know that you were going to create something like the leaf or the nv200 sorry yeah did not you, did really you... I, I mean look i, I became a, a, a clearly a lot of my time was product planning mm. and i always tried to to innovate uh during that period and particularly as i was head of marketing we had the tagline of innovation that excites. So I tried to make yeah. sure that the products lived in that world of innovation and excitement. Uh, and, and that's what created products like Qashqai, for example, Duke, um, but it also created products like GTR. Um, so you're trying to innovate and, and, and excite at the same time. Leaf, I wish I could tell you that the, the initial intention was to save the world, but it wasn't quite yeah. like that. Um, initially, as you probably recall uh, from your history books before you were born, probably, but uh, <laughs> in, in the late 90s, um, Toyota was starting to rule the world with the hybrid, the Prius. Yeah. Uh, and it was doing particularly well in Japan, I have to say. Uh, and all of the salespeople around me were saying, we need a, we need a Nissan Prius. We need something to compete. Mm. Uh, my view was that if we just went in and competed, Peter, just with another hybrid, that it wouldn't take us anywhere. So my view was that we should leapfrog the technology. And that's what took us to uh, the leaf. Interestingly, Honda did follow Toyota, created a vehicle called the Insight, which was fundamentally a failure. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the better decision was that leapfrog technology. And of course, as you start to explore that, you, you start to see the environmental benefits yeah. of, of an AV. And really, we, we really studied to see if we could uh, create a product that was well-to-wheel, uh, what, what's now called net zero carbon. But yeah. at that stage, nobody believed. I mean, the suppliers, the, the infrastructure providers, nobody believed that the world was going to change to electric. In fact, uh, there was one individual at a, at a U.S. car company that said, you may as well take your $4 billion and throw it in the Pacific because electric cars aren't going to work. Um, the laugh is on the other side of the face now. But I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> um, the, that was what we were fighting. So in the end, we satisfied ourselves with being zero tailpipe emissions. Uh, and uh, obviously, we were a big part of the development of the Chadimo uh, uh, charging network system. We created a company called AESC, which is now actually Envision. Uh, which was a battery company that was a joint venture between Nissan and NEC. 
and we built built three giga plants. Remember, this was this all started fifteen years ago. Yeah. Uh, we were in the market ten years ago, so uh, I think Leaf was was really ahead of its time. And then the follow up product, which actually is something I'm really really proud of, which was the NV two hundred, which is the first van. Uh, yeah. EV van, and it's still really the only van that's out there on a unique platform today. And uh, it really is an excellent, an excellent product. Uh, won the for, for the first time for Nissan, it won the um, the van of the year um, yeah. accolade. I mean, there is stuff like the. I mean, what were your opinions on the the Rivian and stuff like that? Yeah, just uh, coming so, out exactly. Yeah, exactly. So with that, you were what? So you said fifteen years ahead of ahead of the curve. Exactly. So we called that one. We called that one correctly. Interestingly, at the time, I was also working on a fuel cell product project, um, and fuel cell is is something that theoretically is very good, uh, but but it's always going to be the sort of technology of the future. In other words, yeah. it probably will never make mass production. But interestingly, of late, I've been studying um, the use of hot hydrogen, which is the combustion of hydrogen in engines as an alternative, particularly for heavy goods vehicles. And that, that looks quite compelling. It's harder to okay. use batteries for heavy goods vehicles. It's hard, well, it's almost impossible to use them for, for example, airplanes. And, you know, basically air travel maybe goes down the e-fuel route where you essentially yeah. generate pulled CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into fuels. Okay. Um, and that might be an interesting, an interesting yeah. way of seeing sports cars go. So I think you know the future looks like mo- most cars, vans, um, buses uh, are yeah. going to be EV. But around the edges, there's there's room for alternative technologies. And as an engineer, I know that we always need to let our engineers innovate because there's going to be stuff that comes out in ten years which, you know, for the next five years, we probably don't even know about. We, we hasn't no, exactly, been, yeah. hasn't been invented yet. But you see, you mentioned sports cars, so I think that's quite a nice segue into your, your time at Aston Martin. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you spent all this time at, at, at Nissan looking at sort of changing the future, and you've, you did pretty, I'd say, a great job at, at that challenge. So what, what made you want to take on the challenge of Aston Martin itself and turning that company around? So I'll briefly, briefly take you back to after that 16-year-old apprentice had finished his apprenticeship, mm. we were in the middle of a, um, a, a bunch of uh, industrial disputes in the UK <coughs> led by someone that was called Red Robbo. It was a union leader. Uh, and it seemed to me that we, there was all these wildcat strikes. Rover was always on strike. AP, was, which was my company, was regularly on strike. I had to be, it was a closed shop, I had to be a member of the union. Uh, and it just struck me that how absurd these industrial relations were. Because in the end, an employee wants to work and and an employer wants the person to work to make the product. So, yeah. you, you mean, basically, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. But it got out of kilter. And I, I just thought at 20 years old, I want to be the CEO, CEO of a car company. Um, and... It was extraordinarily arrogant, by the way. But oh, it was no, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that is that that took me to go and do my degree in industrial management, uh, night schools, and then eventually the rest of the career. I was always driven mm. by that desire to be the chief executive. Now, at Nissan, I'd reached the level of COO, so if you yeah. want the second level. 
and was very, really comfortable, uh, was enjoying what I was doing. But Carlos Ghosn, as, as, as we know, who was my boss, uh, mm-hmm. and, and has, of course, subsequently become quite infamous, he was, he was uh, tackling the politics of running a French company and a Japanese company at the same time. And he'd gone out, I guess, for his own reasons, and he'd said, you know, yes, eventually I'll step up to chairman, and yes, eventually I'll appoint a CEO of Renault and Nissan, yeah. and the CEO of Nissan will be Japanese. And I, that sh- shut the door in my face, basically. Uh, yeah, I, felt, I felt that up to that point, Nissan had been a, a, a company of meritocracy, and this was not this was not meritocracy. I'd got the wrong colour passport, and so very very shortly after that that statement had been made, uh, I got a call from a headhunter uh, who passed me over to an investor, uh, and um, it was basically the company was called Invest Industrial. They okay. were a shareholder in in Aston, and they said, "Would would you like to become the CEO of Aston?" Uh, I think they misled me a little bit in terms of just how bad it was uh, yeah. at the time. But um, uh, it was it was the next village to where I went to school. It was ten miles from where my mom uh, lived. Uh, it fitted it, 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 it ticked so many boxes, but most of all, it was the CEO of a iconic car company and yeah. and so i accepted and that basically meant that october um 2014 i moved across and took over as the ceo of that that company yeah. um and it was scary as hell when i first moved, moved in because we were three months one quarter away from um breaching the covenants on the company which would okay. put the company into in, into bankruptcy mm-hmm. and it was like my goodness I've just left a very safe job at Nissan and now uh, I, I've got to save the company in the first quarter that I'm, I'm there interestingly it was it was the um, James Bond car inspector um, the yeah. GB10 exactly um, it was in, in many ways it was that car that saved the company because we we were able to capitalize the development of that vehicle Rather than being a marketing expense, uh, because it became it became it, it evolved into uh, into Vantage, and, and oops, I apologise. Um, through through that um, through that capitalisation, we were able to uh, um, basically make sure we met the met the covenants requirements. So it, it, it's a bit glib, but in many ways, James Bond saved the company. Oh, and James Bond with the, the DB series itself—it's always been a—it's um, been one of, one, of, one of the best bits of Aston Martin. But so, the whole ch- the chance to redesign the DB series, you know, the DB11 and the DBX. Well, well yes, I mean, that, clearly, yeah. the, the DB9 was was an aging car, as was the Vantage and the um, Vanquish at that time. So, um, the first thing was to generate cash um, to allow us to to replace those vehicles, <clears throat> and the first thing we had we did was create specials. Okay. Um, before we could raise some debt, uh, and that that gave um, birth to what became quite an interesting business: these limited volume specials that really started with the GT12 and the Vulcan. The Vulcan, okay, yeah, peculiar yeah. classic vehicle now. 
uh, followed the following year with the DB8, uh, one of which is in my garage, uh, and the Zagato series. And we ended up yes. doing four versions of the Zagato series. To be honest, that and, and some debt uh, basically funded the DB11. When I joined the company, the DB11 was, was a clay, um, mm. nothing more. Uh, and we, we managed to fund the DB11, which, of course, then allowed us to fund the Vantage, which allowed us to fund the, the, um, the DBS. DBX, yeah. Um, but right from the get-go, I commissioned uh, the, um, the, 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 the SUV, so the, the DBX. Yeah. Um, so third day, I asked the, the, the styling team or the design team to create for me something that would allow me to announced what became the second century plan, which was a commitment to uh, an SUV and mid-engine sports cars and the Lagondas. Um, and that, that was to be done at the Geneva Motor Show. Yeah. And in the, it, so only in the end, six months later, in that period of time, we created the, the bare bones of the DBX. And in subsequent, subsequent Geneva shows, we also came and, and showed what Valkyrie would look like what Valhalla would look like, what the future Vanquish would look like, and what Lagonda as an electric series would look like. Yeah, so you've taken all of those, and what was it that wanted you to, I mean, those those cars in particular, that sort of lineage for Aston Martin to carry on? What was what was it that you thought was special about those cars to give to give Aston Martin what it needed? Well, there's a changing market. Um, I mean, the the market isn't all about sports cars anymore and it, it's not necessarily all about uh v12 engines either so you've got to evolve with the times yeah so on, on the one hand um i think i'm right in saying that 72 or 73 percent of our customers had got an suv in the garage so that was a good that in itself was a, a good motivation to bring an suv to to uh, markets it was also true that we were looking at the success of, of ferrari and of course, they're, they're, at that time, their their success was really born around the 488 yeah. mid-engine car, mm-hmm. and the margins on a mid-engine car are much bigger than the margins on a front-engine car. So we needed to get into that space. So that that was really the motivation behind the initiation of of the um, Valkyrie. And of course, we needed, and I knew this from my Nissan days, we needed to get into electric. Yeah. Uh, and, and in my mind, the, the, the best way of doing that would be to have a separate brand. And, and we owned one, Lagonda. Uh, and Lagonda historically was always about silent travel. So mm. it fitted really well with the concept of, of electrification. And, um, you know, my, my view was that's where we should go ahead. We should go ahead with a, a luxury EV to compete with Bentley and uh, with Rolls-Royce. After leaving, of course, that that program has been cancelled. But but yeah. that was my that was my motivation behind it. Your vision, yeah. I mean, so you've you've taken you've taken what you learned from Nissan. You've you brought it to Aston Martin. You've you've changed that up. Did a, did a great job. And you're now looking at switch switch mobility was the next step. Yeah. So, so um, after there was a change of ownership at Aston, um, mm-hmm. I left. Uh, but I've been working as a non-executive director with Ashok Leyland for. I think about six years uh and um i was asked by the the owners of ashok leyland the hinduda family to come and kick the tires of the group and see you know where the opportunities might lie so um 
initially I came in as, as you know working as that non-exec and mm. kicked the tires around and, and and saw this what I felt was a very clear opportunity, uh, which was taking Optair in the UK and taking the EV division of Ashok Leyland and and bringing them together to create a new company, um, one that was entirely focused as EV, but raising the bar and going back that 15 years where I failed to be able to do well-to-wheel or net zero carbon, making switch a net zero carbon company from the get-go. And so, you know, after studying it uh, and proposing it to the family in the June of 2020, um, they offered me, you know, the, the, the opportunity to become the CEO, which I accepted, yeah. um, and, and, and subsequently have been building that 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 vehicle. Interestingly, uh, having done uh, a small sale of shares to Dana, uh, valuing that company at $1.6 billion. So yeah. in the first year of build, that was pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. And now, uh, you know, basically our buses, we start vans at the end of this year, yeah. our buses are certified net zero carbon. Um, I think in that sense, as far as I know, we're the first automotive company in the world to be net zero carbon. That means no carbon is, is produced in the supply chain, in the manufacturing, in the running of the vehicle, and in the end of life. Obviously, it's impossible to do that right now. So for the carbon that is produced, um, we take offsets, uh, and that, okay. that allows us to uh, reach that certified net zero carbon zero. Um, so, so yes, that's been um, a big part of what I've done. But I've I've also uh, become chairman of a company called Innovat, which yes. is a battery company, EV battery company. Um, obviously, that's fueled again by that passion to to drive the, the industry towards net zero carbon. Um, I've invested in and become chairman of a company called Hilo, which is a uh, scooter, e-scooter okay. business, trying to transform that that industry into a safer zone uh, with, with, with using tech um, to just make e-scooters safer. Yeah, uh, I mean, they're in London. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for example, um, senior independent director with Podpoint, yeah. the charging company. And I set up... Um, Two activities. One was Palmer Automotive, which is a consulting yes. group. And the other, just to, f- to finish that circle, the circle of life, um, I set up a foundation a charity called the Palmer Foundation, which is all about helping disadvantaged youth uh, to become apprentices uh, yeah. and sort of dealing with uh, that opportunity through from 14 until 18 and Giving, giving kids that perhaps don't have a great background, uh, helping them through that, uh, helping them to have a passion on STEM and eventually finding and funding their apprenticeships for the first couple of years. Well, yeah, so, I mean, it's clear that you've got uh, sustainability as a, as a, as a key to core moral, whether that be in the, in the industry or with, with the, the people that are going into the industry. So I kind of wanted to ask you a question around some other passions, like your racing, mm-hmm. for instance, your, your your racing career. So, I mean, would would the Palmer Foundation look at doing apprenticeships for racing mechanics and stuff like that, or would that be? Uh, yes, um, it, it's possible. In fact, uh, I'm the ambassador for uh, Team Brits, which is um, yeah. uh, a, a, a race team of GT3 and GT4s uh, where... Um, 
uh, the, the drivers and some of the mechanics paraplegic or, or, or mm-hmm. disabled. And the idea there is that they compete without excuses uh, yeah. on a level playing field. And eventually we'd like to see that team race at Le Mans. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy to put any apprentice into a field. And only two things need to happen. One, we need to find the right people that want to become the apprenticeships and have yeah. a passion for, let's say, racing. And on the other hand, work with race teams so that we can match that up. But obviously I have great contacts in the racing environment and you know it's possible to imagine that happening see so, yeah, motorsport itself so how was i mean what was racing with um poor hollywood like <laughs> <laughs> you know odd story i mean i'd been living in japan for a long time so um uh, when i came back i'd never heard of bake off um, <laughs> um, i came back and we were we were uh at i think we were at le mans actually and I, I was introduced yeah. to uh, to Paul, and as you are, very polite, but I had no clue who he was. So it was only later that I, re- I found out about, you know, basically this is super famous guy uh, who also has a, a passion for racing. And yeah. over the years, Paul has become a, a really good friend. Oh, good. And so touching more on the racing, uh, what is it? What is it? Do you race now? Are you racing in a series at the moment or looking for looking yeah, to I, anything? I race uh, G- GT4s. Uh, now, the, the 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 rationale behind racing. I'm going to take you back to the um, the Nissan story. Yeah, we we were launching cars at the time um, under the banner of innovation that excites, but we were typically getting three and four stars by the journalists. And you know, Gohan was starting to get furious about this. You know, why 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 do our cars look so great but they're not getting the scores? Uh, and, and, you know, why do journalists consider Nissan's to be boring? Um, and, you know, basically, so who's responsible for marketability? And the poor executive uh, executive um, in charge of engineering put his hand up and said, I am. He said, yeah. we're not anymore. It's going across to Andy. Now, the irony there is that I would have assessed cars in exactly the same way that he assessed them. Um, and I figured, well, we've got to do something different. So, um We've got to start driving them at the extremes in the way that sometimes the journalists drive them. And so I figured that the only way I was going to be able to do that would be to learn to race yeah. uh, and then and then put some like-minded people around me that, that would be responsible for the sign off the vehicles. And that's what happened. That's the reason I went racing. And, of course, I fell in love. Um, part, partly because when I same with flying, um, when you do those activities, you're so focused. Um, so if it's a sprint race, for example, yeah. one hour, absolute extreme focus where you don't think about anything else. And I found that in ter- terribly liberating uh, and great from a sort of stress management point of view. Uh, it's a different kind of stress, but it's, it, that's the point. It's a, different, it's a different challenge. And I just found it in a way as just refreshing my, my mind. Uh, yeah. and, and I've... I've Found the same ever since, and now when I can, I like to do twenty-four hour racing. Yes, there's a form of meditation for yourself, almost sort of. Kind of yes, exactly. Of getting get behind the wheel and um, emptying your mind. So I mean, you've all the racing you've done so far, and you've you've got the sustainability. I mean, what what sort of morals do you try and uphold outside of the boardroom and in your personal life? What are what are some values that you try to hold hold dear to your heart? Well, my my kids are really important to me. I have four mm. children. 
um, and hoping that they they got brought up in a in, in a way that um, helps them. They work very hard, which has always been my my ethic. So you know yeah. that, that's really important. Of course, uh, the apprenticeship side, uh, being a champion for apprentices, has become a passion. Um, and as I say, more and more around driving the industry as far as I can towards the yeah. net carbon zero. This is, I guess, the, the kind of um, trinity that I, I, I try to uh, try to create, if you, if you will, that represents me as an individual. Yeah, well, so you speak with your kids. Any of them caught this this bug for the automotive industry? Is any? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> my, my my two oldest daughters did mathematics at university, and you would think they were assured to be uh, to be uh, engineers, but no. Regrettably, um, one's doing very well in banking. The other one yeah. is doing very well in marketing. Uh, my son is at, at uh, Nottingham University doing a PhD. Uh, in, oh. in, in economics, uh, and my youngest doesn't quite know what she wants to do yet, but she's just about to take uh, GCSEs, so she's still she's still got plenty of time in front of yeah. her. None of them seem to show any any propensity towards engineering, regrettably. Maybe because they can see how hard Dad works. <laughs> so you know, you don't feel like sticking a, a series engine in any of their hands anytime soon. Then giving them a go <laughs> well, at that. Look at my eyes; you can see my workshop. So they had, they certainly had the opportunity to work on the tools, but yeah. um, not not. Uh, they haven't shown a strong desire for it yet. So you meant you meant your workshop. So if you said you, I think in a video you recreated the tools you had in an apprentice. So yeah. um, what have you got? What, what, what have you got in there? Um, I wish I could take you down there, but it, it's yeah. what you'd expect to find in a tool room. So uh, there's there's a forge which you can just see the the top off here. Yeah. Um, there's um, uh, a vertical milling machine. Uh, there's a um, lathe. Yeah. A folding machine, uh, welding table, measuring table, drawing board. Uh, I haven't gone CAD. I, I'm still a bit old school from Why that not? perspective. So there's, there's, there's all the stuff that you need to well, virtually make anything. I, I'm missing the, um, uh, the, the 3D printer. That's the, the last piece of kit that I need to bring in. Um, and at the moment, I'm repairing clocks uh, okay. down there. Um, but the intention is when I have more time, maybe as I think about retirement sometime in the future, to, to, to build a clock, um, a tower oh. clock, which will go on the building out here. So that's the kind of that's the kind of project, and you know, the clocks are really just transmissions, and transmissions are where I started my career. That's a nice, it's a really nice full circle sort of thing in the end to make to make a clock, and to have that sort of hold hold time. Yes, in itself, a beautiful thing. I mean, I know we're almost coming to the end here, but I've got a few sort of not geeky car questions, but sort of just the, the run of the mill casual sort of questions that are sort of. Without going into too too much, um, I don't know, hurting people's feelings. What is the? F I mean, one of the best cars that you've driven, or the best cars that you think have been created at all, sort of, in the past hundred years. Oh, over the hundred years. I mean, look, there are there are certain cars that that define uh, a generation. Whether it's the Isigonis Mini or the Fiat Cinquecento, or, yeah. or whether it's uh, um, the Daxon 510, um, that yeah. sort of defines an era. You know, the, the McLaren F1 defined an era. 
uh, that I hope will be replicated by the Valkyrie. Um, the Golf, um, you know, that, that's been a, a, a generation change. But I also believe that So the golf I've been involved in, which really, really key to me. Um, clearly, the mini, uh, the, yeah. the original um, K10, K11, K12 micros. I was involved in in all of that up, up to the present day micro. Um, wow. Then I know this sounds silly, but but Cabstar, which was my first truck. The yeah. NV two hundred, which was my first van, uh, key 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 ones. Um, the GTR, but in particular the the Nismo GTR. Yeah, definitely. Cascai. Uh, um, uh, very. I was very happy with the Titan second generation of Titan in the United States, uh, which I think appeal was much more appealing. Um, and then of course the, the, yeah. the Aston range, uh, yeah. crowned if you will by by the DBX on one side and the Valkyrie on the other. So, so there's, 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 there's cars that, for me, mark certain changes in automotive history. And, and hopefully, over my 42 years of career, I've been able to contribute a little bit to the soul of that industry and the creation of some of those products. Uh, yeah, moving on. So you, if you, okay, so if you had to any of those cars to any track or any road across, across the UK or the world, where, where would you go? What, what would you take? Um, I've had the I've had the pleasure of driving at some of the the best tracks in the world, um, and each of them have have aspects which are just fabulous. But um, it would be a toss up for me between Austin and Spa. Um, okay, they both have the 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 back side of Austin with the curves yeah. is just such a challenge. It's so quick, um, but um, Let's go with Spa, shall we? Because that was the first time I was able to race in the night as quick as I was able to race in the day. So it was a sort of maturing of my racing career uh, there, and uh, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, of course, if you're going to race in in those kind of cars, then I'd pick Vantage because they're so beautifully beautifully balanced. And um, Mm. I have a GT8, which is the road-going version of the... uh, of the race car, it's such a beautiful car. So, I mean, how was how was Radion? How is that? <laughs> how is that corner? I mean, yeah. Spa is just somewhere you've got to be yeah. right on your game for the whole period that you're uh, that you're uh, you're driving. Uh, and you know, you get lots of people that will tell you, uh, you know, how to take uh, how to take the various difficult corners. Um, uh, don't listen to them. It's scary. <laughs> it's scary as hell when you're actually on the track and and uh, someone tells you to take you at full throttle. Uh, I lift. You lift. You. Oh well. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh, so I mean, you've another, another little just geeky sort of question is if you the soundtrack to your perfect drive. I know you you mentioned punk rock as an interest in various different interviews. Yeah. But if you if you had to pick a song to to go with that sort of 
wrote any road trip sort of song? What, I mean, what would you go for? I I, I love um, I love most forms of rock music, um, and and it's it's generally speaking, I love music generally, and I can listen yeah. listen to classical and jazz. But if I'm driving, then I normally listen to rock, and it's usually rock coming from the late seventies, early eighties. Um, so it, it would probably be any any of those vehicles, but um, I suppose I should go with something with a, a car in the title. So uh, let's go for Queen, shall we? Oh dear, I love my car. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> oh, brilliant, um, Andy. That's that's all. That's all I had to ask you today. I mean, th- thank you so much. I know we're cutting a bit short, but um, I think that you've you've had an amazing career, and you're clearly very passionate about the work you've done. So it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure yeah, to, to, to chat, and hopefully, hopefully, some of your listeners will maybe find, maybe I can inspire somebody to become an apprentice. That's the idea. To, yeah, to the people listening to this, to to uh, take their passions and, and their inspirations, and and take them further and, and pursue them. So again, Super. thank you. For, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Harry. Bye. We were, thanks to you guys listening, in the top 10% of podcasts most shared, which is so impressive and means so much to me. Still, I want to set you a challenge of getting into that top 1%. So if you have ever enjoyed an episode or thought that the message from a guest was worth sharing, please send that episode to your friends. If you know someone that loves cars and is looking to get into the industry or change careers, help give them some inspiration.